The stream is the soul, and you are the keeper. How is it with your soul? How is it with your stream? And let me remind you that the reason this conversation is important is because it has everything to do with the peace that I know you want in your life, that every human ever wanted, the things that they want, the things that you want, are all about the stream, about this connection that we have with God. You know, we tell people pretty regularly, almost every single week, we tell people that if you really want to have a fulfilled life, you need to get yourself involved in the person of Jesus Christ. And we talk about it around here as uh, we talk about it like the God-shaped hole. We say that everybody has a God-shaped hole. And the only way for that God-shaped hole to be filled is to fill it with the person of Jesus Christ. But we must understand that a relationship with Jesus is just like every other relationship that you have. You have to invest in it in order for your life to be influenced by that relationship. There are relationships that you've had or that you have that if you don't invest in them, if you don't take time in them, if you don't pour into that relationship, the relationship suffers. And surely it is true of a relationship with God. We have to invest. So how is your stream? This series is based on biblical insights and also from a book called Soul Keeping that's by John Ortberg, wonderful book that was very meaningful for me, and the time that I had a year ago when I was struggling with my own health and challenges that I had at that time. Last week, we began with the question, what is the soul? And I invited you to think about that the soul is uh, a part of four basic pieces to every one of us. We have the soul, we have the mind, we have the will, and we have the body. The soul's job is to integrate the other pieces together so that there's balance in our lives, harmony in our lives. Today, we're continuing our look at the soul by inviting us to think about the struggles of the soul. And as we think about the struggles of the soul, let me ask you another question as I begin today, and that is, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? It's probably not a question that you ask yourself often. Uh, it's not one that we think about regularly, but it is a, real, a very important question for us to consider because the things that you are pouring into yourself today are going to help you become the person that you will be tomorrow. And then you have to ask yourself the question, what are the things that I'm pouring into myself today that are going to make me that person that maybe I want to be tomorrow? Think about it with the image of a pearl. A pearl begins as a little piece of sand or debris that enters an oyster's system. And in order to insulate itself from that intruder, the oyster begins to put a coating around it. And week by week, day by day, month by month, year by year, sometimes taking as much as six years, a pearl is cultured. It takes a lot of time for that pearl to become the pearl that you would maybe buy at the jewelry store. What the oyster does today and over the years is about what that pearl will become. And you and I are like the pearl. We are becoming something. But what is it that you are becoming? Think about your kids. You want your kids to be some kind of a person in the future. 
you have an idea of what that is like. And whether you're intentional about it or not, as you pour into your kids, you're pouring into them things that they will remember when they become adults. Who are you becoming? One of our problems is that our world does not teach us to pay attention to what matters. If we listen to the world, the world tells us about things that we've accomplished. If you go for a new job, you're going to give them a resume, and the resume tells about where you've been, about the things that you've accomplished, but it doesn't say anything about who you are becoming. TV ads, if we look at a television ad or an ad on our phone or an ad on our computer, the ads tell us that we're not young enough. The ads tell us that we're not slim enough. The ads tell us that we're not athletic enough. Oh, it goes on and on. The world is trying to convince us that we need to be something. But what is that something that the world is trying to convince us we should be? Who are you becoming? Because the world around us often keeps us from nourishing our souls, Jesus told a story about it. And I'm sure many of you have heard this story before, but uh, Ortberg is going to help us this morning think about the parable of the sower or the farmer in a little bit different way. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 4, verses 3 through 9. Jesus said, Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun, and since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seed fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Then he said, Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Let the church say amen. It's a story about seeds and a sower or a farmer and some soil. And like many stories, it helps us understand the story if we understand what the variables are and the constants are. In the story, as Jesus tells it, the seed is a constant. It's not a story about good seeds and bad seeds. The seed is a little picture of of the pregnant purpose that we all have for our lives, about redeeming our souls. The farmer or the sower is a constant in the story as well. It's not about a good farmer or a bad farmer. But we do notice that the farmer is very generous because the farmer is scattering the seed everywhere. Finally, the soil is what is interesting because it, in the story, is the only variable. And we could replace the word soul with the word soil in this story. A closed soul is death. A receptive soul is life. So let's think about this parable from the perspective of the soul. The first seed falls on the footpath and the birds come along and eat it. This is an example of a hardened soul. In the Middle East, it's not a stretch for you. You understand that Many of the areas in the Middle East are, are arid climates. Uh, they're dry. They're hot. Uh, cultivating fields there is a challenge at different times and places. And you would understand that between the fields, there are 
walking paths, and this walking path is what Jesus refers to about the first seed. The seed falls on the walking path where the shepherds would walk, where the sheep would walk. It is hard, it has been compacted, and we would understand that placing a seed on that kind of soul would be a hard place for it to germinate. And souls get like that. Seeds like this are often people who have been hurt or disappointed. They form a protective shell. We've all done it in our lifetimes. They, we, sometimes become bitter and cynical and suspicious about what's going on around us. And the Bible has plenty of examples of hardened souls that it gives to us. Cain was hardened because his brother Abel's offering was acceptable before God. David, his brothers were hardened against David because they were jealous of their brother. Joseph's brothers also became jealous too. They were hardened against him because he was the favorite of their father. They hated him. A hardened soul sees themselves more as victims, wrapped in the hurt that they have received, rather than noticing the hurt that they give to others. Underneath, the hardness is often fear. Fear of rejection, fear of looking foolish, fear of being hurt, fear of broken pride. It's all related to this idea, this concept of the hardened soul. The next seed that Jesus mentions falls on rocky soil. This is the condition of the shallow soil. It wasn't just a bunch of rocks, you understand, that, Jesus, that the farmer threw the seeds on. It was soil, but there was a rocky shelf underneath it. In fact, in the Mideast, uh, it is well known that topsoil is generally thin. There's not a lot to it. There's a limestone shelf just below the surface. And if you really want something to grow, you've got to break through that limestone shelf. The image that Jesus gives to us is seed falling on soil like this. It's able to germinate, but it doesn't have enough growth potential for the roots. And so when the sun comes out, it dries it up and it withers and dies. Richard Foster is a favorite author of mine. He's written for many years about the spiritual life. And one of the things that he said in one of his recent books is that superficiality is the curse of our age. Think about that a moment. He makes the bold claim, superficiality is the curse of our age. The soul doesn't need a giant intelligence or a massive talent or over-the-top excitement. What the soul needs, what your soul and my soul longs for, is simply depth. Like it says in Psalm 42, verse 1, it says, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Does your soul long for for God? So much of our lives are lived in the shallows. We get encouraged or we get discouraged by how many likes we get or don't get on a Facebook post or how many hearts show up on our Instagram page. We're influenced by the likes in our world, which is an illustration simply of how shallow we can be. We think when we live in the shallows, that our life would be good if I just had this or if I just did that. We're always thinking that there might be some other possibility out there that if only this would happen, then my life would be right. That's a person who lives in the shallow. But then something happens. 
when we live in the shallow. Something happens. Something changes. Somebody dies. Somebody's born. Some kind of health crisis rises up in our lives. And we find then that we begin to wrestle with the deeper things. I went and looked back. I didn't take good records in the early part of my ministry, uh, but I know that I've done probably around 150 funerals. And when you stand where I stand at a funeral and look at the faces of people, one of the things that I know about the faces of people that attend funerals is they're wrestling with deep issues. They're wrestling with their mortality because they know that the person who's in the casket here is dead and they can't turn away from that. And they know that they're going to die one day too. And so they begin to wrestle with the deeper things of God. You and I need to wrestle with those deeper things. Our souls become shallow when we're only concerned about ourselves, when our lives go no further than me. A deep soul has the capacity to understand and empathize with just about anybody, not just ourselves. A deep soul lives with an awareness of eternity, that eternity is coming. Depth is about going beneath the surface. Do you get much below the surface in your life? We have conversations here on Sunday morning, out in the lobby, out in the hallways, and those conversations also often have to do with how's the weather. And in Texas, that's a com- regular conversation, right? Because we don't know what it's going to be today or tomorrow. But, but my reason for bringing it up is that very often we like to talk about the weather because we don't want to talk about the deeper things. We don't talk about the deeper things very often. I love John Wesley, the founder of our tradition, way back in the 1700s, late 1700s, he started, he started these class meetings, and they were basically small groups. And the small groups that they had, they had one question that they asked of everybody in the room when they were at their class meeting. And the question was, how is it with your soul? It's a pretty deep question. How is it with your soul? Maybe rather than asking each other about how the weather is when we're out in the lobby or we see each other at Albertsons, maybe we should be asking the question, how is it with your soul? So that we can get to the real stuff rather than the fake stuff and the pretend stuff. The Bible makes it clear that even God has a soul. In fact, there are 20 different verses that reference God having a soul, like Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. God says to his people, I will live among you and I will not despise you. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. And you look at different translations of what's intended in the sentence, what you find out is that this idea of the will, when it says I will, it it literally is translated my soul. So that it says God is saying my soul will live among you and my soul will not ignore you. When Jesus was baptized. You remember that? When Jesus went down into the water to be baptized by John the Baptist? In Matthew 3, 17, it says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Other translations say that a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him my soul is well pleased. A third example Jesus gives us from this story is that some seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. This is the condition of the cluttered soul. 
Jesus said this condition is where the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire of things come and choke the soul. Somebody said a long time ago that if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy because either way, your soul will shrivel. Our world is a cluttered world and clutter is dangerous. In Matthew 19, we, we see an interchange between Jesus and a wealthy man. The wealthy man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to get, do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, love God and do the things of God, that kind of thing. And the guy says, oh, yeah, I've done all that. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a regular at the temple. I, I do all these good things, and I've been busy in my life serving God. And, and as the guy begins to walk away, Jesus says, oh, and there's one more thing that you need to do. And the guy says, well, what is that? And he says, well, you need to liquidate all your assets and make out a check to Lighthouse Fellowship and give them the money. <laughs> Let the church say amen. Oh, come on, give me an amen for that, right? But you understand that Jesus, as he encountered this man, understood that his life was cluttered, and it was cluttered because he was placing his money over his relationship with God. The man was lost. He couldn't find himself. The busy soul gets attached to the wrong things. We mistake clutter for life. If we cease to be busy, we sometimes maybe ask ourselves, do I really matter if I'm not busy? A cluttered soul is preoccupied with the external, with success, with reputation, with constant activity, with lifestyle, with office gossip. And let me, as I say all these things to you, let me invite you to, to not just kind of pass it off and let it drift away, but to really do business with yourself this morning, to ask yourself the question, where am I pushing away responsibility for my life? Where am I preoccupied with the shallow things? Jesus finally says that some of the seed fell on fertile soil. And it was in that environment that it was able to grow. This last category of the soil is about the seed falling on fertile soil. If you want a fertile soul, you've got to have some depth to your life. You've got to be nourishing your life. A hardened, shallow, or cluttered soul is a soul that is lost. A lost soul is about its condition, not its destination. Let me say that again. A lost soul is about its condition, not its destination. Think about it this way. When we are lost, we are, lo we are not lost because we are going to wind up in the wrong place. We are going to wi wind up in the wrong place because we are lost. Think about it like this. If a car no longer works, if a car doesn't work anymore, it doesn't matter whether the car is parked at a junkyard or the Ritz-Carlton. It still is of no use to us. And our planet is filled with lost souls, people whose lives do not work. And it is my prayer this morning that there is someone here or someone watching at home who, who recognizes right now that their soul is lost. Remember, the soul integrates the will, the body, and the mind, and sin breaks it. Sin disintegrates them. When I sin, my appetite for lust or anger or superiority dominates my will. My will, which was made to rule my body, becomes enslaved 
to what my body wants. And if I falsely flatter somebody, I learn to use my mouth and my face to conceal my true thoughts and intentions. It takes a lot of energy to disintegrate my body from my mind. When you or I gossip, we've slipped into disintegration because we're talking somebody else down. And by default, what we're saying is that person is less of a person than I am. Sin distorts my perceptions, alienates my relationships, inflames my desires, it enslaves my will. Maybe you've heard that they say so that confession is good for the soul. And we would say, yeah, confession is good for the soul. It's good for us. And confession begins to heal the split that comes from sin. The more we pretend, the more our pride prevents us from taking responsibility for ourselves, the more we need confession. It is much better to be a hot mess in front of God rather than be a dishonest saint before God. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 51, 6. You desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Other translations say it a little bit differently. You desire truth in my innermost parts. Is there truth in your innermost parts? A critical teaching as we think about the soul this morning is, is that if I want to be the best husband I could be to my wife, Chrissy, if I want to be the best parent I can be to our boys, if I want to be the best granddad I can be, if I want to be the best son, if I want to be the best neighbor, if I want to be the best global citizen of this world, I must recognize that my soul longs for its creator. Your soul longs for a connection with your creator. 1 Peter 2.11 says it this way, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. In other words, as temporary residents, we need to remember that we are in the world but not of the world. Our souls are designed to integrate the body, the mind, and the will. God designed us this way so that our choices, our thoughts, our desires, our behavior would all be in harmony with one another, powered by this unbroken connection with God. It's about being connected to God, if you haven't heard that already. Psalm 103.1 says, Let my whole being bless the Lord. Let everything inside me bless His holy name. And why in the world would we want to bless the Lord? Well, because He saved us. Because he gives us life, because he gives us a future, because he gives us today filled with peace. It's why here at Lighthouse we have our why statement. Our why statement, which, about, which is about why we exist as a church. Because everyone has a God-shaped hole that only Jesus can fill. Everybody has a God-shaped hole that only Jesus can fill. Connection with God is the only hope that you or I would ever have to have a fulfilled life. It's why when Jesus was asked one time about which was the most important commandment of all the commandments that are out there and, and all the law that are out there, over 600 of them, which is the most important? And Jesus responded in Mark 12. He says, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. This passage, this statement that Jesus gives to us about the great commandment reminds us of the soul. Jesus said, your wholeness, your love for God comes from your connection to God, but it's got to involve your mind, it's got to involve your body, it's got to involve your strength strength or your will. Then the soul can integrate them all together. Sin breaks this connection with God. It disintegrates our lives. James said it this way in, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, whoever asks shouldn't hesitate. They should ask in faith without doubting. Whoever doubts is like the surf of the sea, tossed and turned by the wind. People like that should never imagine that they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded, unstable in all their ways. And this concept of being double-minded, if you went back to the original language and studied a little bit, what you would find is that it literally means double-souled or fractured-souled or split-souled to be double-minded. Now, we may not speak much about being double-minded in our society today, but you know what double-minded sounds like because you've been there in the past, haven't you? You've heard or said or you heard people say, I feel like my life is falling apart. That's a double-minded person. Or I just can't seem to get myself together. Or I can't get my act together. Or I'm coming apart at the seams. These are all statements from a double-minded person. The cries of a soul that needs to be healed. Parker Palmer, also another author of many spiritual disciplines, writes, the divided life is a wounded life, and the soul keeps calling us to heal the wound. God's intent for you and me is that we would be able to oversee our will, which directs our mind and then our body, so that if everything is working right, your body will be obedient as will your mind and your will, and you will live in harmony. Would you say that your life is in harmony right now? My soul exists to be surrendered to God in every way. My mind should be under the control of my will, and in turn, my body would, should always submit to my mind. But too often, the will lacks the power to control the mind, allowing it to go places we don't want it to go. And our bodies are collections of appetites that veer out of control and habits that drag us down paths we don't want to travel. That's why diving more deeply into spiritual disciplines is so important for any Christ follower. And when I say spiritual disciplines, I'm talking about developing habits that, that deepen your walk with God and therefore deepen your soul. Things like reading the Bible regularly, praying regularly, Investing in other people through the life of the church. These are all things that help strengthen our souls, especially when times when we're weak. Now, one of the things that I'm doing this Lent, one of the spiritual disciplines, and it may not sound all that spiritual to you when I tell you about it, but one of the disciplines that I'm taking on this Lent is that I am abstaining from eating Oreos. And if you know me much, you know of my great love for Oreos. Let the church say amen. I don't know if you've tried the peanut butter Oreos of, or not, but I just got to tell you that the peanut butter Oreos are just like Girl Scout sandwich cookies. They are amazing 
when you combine them with milk. Let the church say amen again. Now, I've long touted that the way they package Oreos is that when you open the bag of Oreos, it's, it's, it's manufactured in three easy servings, right? There's three rows of Oreos. Those are three easy servings. And imagine that I called you and said, hey, I want you to come over to the house and have dinner. And you came over, and we had a nice dinner, and we visited and got acquainted. And at the end of dinner, uh, I said, would you like some dessert? And, of course, you would say, well, sure. So I would go to the pantry, and I would pull out a, a, a container of Oreos, and I would pull the sleeve back, and I would say, help yourself. And you would take maybe two or maybe three and put them on your plate, and you would begin eating. And then I would just pull the bag over toward me, and then I would begin eating a whole row. <laughs> now, if you're not aware of it, a, a regular bag of Oreos has 13 cookies in a row. There are 39 in a package of Oreos. Uh, after the last service, I had somebody tell me that the 13 rep is, a, is a spiritual thing because it represents the 12 disciples plus Jesus. So go ahead and eat the 13 of them, right? <laughs> Amen to that, right? So, But by the time I got maybe two-thirds through of the row that I was eating, I looked up at you, and you kind of had this kind of ghostly look on your face, like, I can't believe he's going to eat all those cookies. And I would realize why you're looking at me like that, and I would be embarrassed that I'm being gluttonous by eating all these cookies. And so instead of taking responsibility for myself and saying, gosh, I'm sorry that I'm such a glutton with this, instead of doing that, I look at you and say, well, they're manufactured to be eaten in one row at a time. I, I would, by saying that, justify my actions to you. And what I would be doing by trying to justify my actions to you is I would be telling you a lie. I try to protect myself by saying, oh, that's the way they're made. And because of that, I find myself caught in the lie, not only to myself, but to you as well. And by the time it's all said and done, when I end up at the cardiologist's office, the cardiologist, after my angiogram, would look at my films and say, man, your, your veins are plugged up with something that looks like cream filling from an Oreo. <laughs> That's what you get when you become gluttonous. You know, as well as I do, that you can justify doing pretty much anything that you want to do. We're pretty good at it. We can justify why we're doing this or why we're doing that. But when we justify things that we know are destructive to ourselves, what we are doing is we are disintegrating our very souls. When we look at things on the Internet that we know are wrong, we're giving over our minds and our bodies to things that are destructive. When you think that you deserve to have the affair that you're having with that individual because of the station of your life and because of the station of their life. Oh, you've justified it in your mind all day long. It's okay to do this, even though you know down here that it's wrong. What we're doing when we justify things is we're convincing ourselves that it's okay. We're not listening to our minds. We're not listening to our bodies, and we're certainly not listening to our wills. And our soul is fractured. And, oh, by the way, my Oreo illustration may seem trivial to you, 
But at its heart, behind it, are the dynamics of all the elements that are needed to destroy. Things like jealousy and lust and greed and anger and abuse and deceit. Those are the seeds that are sown when we justify things like that. Where in your life have you allowed your mind or body or will to compromise who you are, leading to disintegration? The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 7, 15. He said, I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing that I hate. And three verses later, he says, I know that good doesn't live in me. That is in my body. The desire to do good is inside of me, but I can't do it. I don't do the good that I want to do, but I do the evil that I don't want to do. It's not a condition that is just about Paul who wrote those words. It's a condition that we all share. Doing things that we know we shouldn't do, but we do them anyway. It's just a reminder of the importance of our will and our body and our mind. A sin is a sin is a sin. And sin disintegrates our bodies. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he goes on to say, and I am the worst of all. Now, Paul didn't take some study and look at a study and, to find out who were the worst sinners out there. No, he understood that he was the worst sinner by looking at himself. He's not measured anybody else's sin. He recognizes that, that his, for him, is the worst. Dan Irley is a Duke University professor and author of a book that's called The Honest Truth About Dishonest. The Honest Truth About Dishonest. He was astounded as he did his study about how widespread it is for people to have the tendency to cheat, to be self-centered, to lie, to be deceitful. He says, he hypothesizes in the book, he says there are two primary motivations that we have. The first one is we want selfish gain. But we want that selfish gain while avoiding any pain. And so we're willing to lie or cheat or deceive to get it. The second thing that he says is we want to be able to look in the mirror and think that we're a good person, that we're an honest person, that we're honorable people. And as a way of illustrating his point in the book, he says that over the course of many years as a professor, he was amazed at how many deaths occurred of people related to his students, especially at the end of his semester and right before final exams. A study by Eastern Connecticut State University found that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 more times likely to die before a final other studies have shown that students who are failing a class are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than the students who are not failing. And it turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens of our day ends, to be, ends up to be their children, their grandchildren's GPA. And the moral of the story is that if you're a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to college, <laughs> especially if he or she is intellectually challenged. <laughs> Professor Arley goes on to say that a single act of dishonesty is not a petty act because it is shaping how we view ourselves. 
We are souls, and everything is connected. It's about those four pieces, the body, the mind, the will, the soul. The soul seeking to integrate all the pieces together, and the result is harmony, balance in life. I want to invite you today to ask yourself the question, have I been given life? And I'm not just talking about your physical life, but I I want to invite you to think about your spiritual life, your relationship with God. I say it regularly. We say it regularly around here. If you really want the best life you could possibly have, you've got to have a relationship with God. And that relationship with God begins in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I invite you to do that today. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're watching online. Whatever the case may be, if you're searching, what you're searching for is a relationship with God. Your soul is working to try to get you reconnected to the author of your life. And your life will never be fulfilled unless you finally get it right by asking Jesus in. And as I said at the very beginning, it's not just about asking Jesus in today. It's about asking him in every single day to remember that if I accepted Jesus 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago or yesterday, I need to ask him in to be a part of my life every single day. Because you have no chance. You have no chance of getting fulfillment, finding fulfillment in your life until you do that. And, oh, by the way, and this may sound a little self-serving coming from me, but you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when you get yourself right with God by asking Jesus in, the next thing you need to do is you need to get connected to his body, which is the church. It's not the building, it's the people. We need each other. We need each other to help us grow to make it right with our souls. And that's why I asked the question at the beginning, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? The stream is the soul. You are the keeper. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray on this morning that we would take seriously what you teach us about our souls. Lord, we can recognize that there are places in our lives where we have given way in a habit that involves our mind or our body, that our wills can be weak in certain areas. God, help us to be aware of those things and begin even now by the power of your Holy Spirit to move in our lives to change us give us the strength we need, God, so that we might be obedient to you and your will for our lives. God, bless us. Bless our souls to be that which you created them to be, connected to you, bringing fulfillment to our lives in a way that nothing else can. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said amen and amen.